Gosh, I love being a part of our church. I love this place that we get to come and gather, be reminded of all the goodness of God, all the grace of God. I mean, it's so nice to have a place that we belong. And what I love about our church too is we want to make sure that if this is your spot, you belong. Like you are in the middle center of the universe here, that you belong. And if this isn't your place, gosh, we want to make sure there's really easy on-ramps so that you can belong. What I think is wild though is belonging is like this core human need. Like we all need a spot that goes, this is our spot. This is where we belong. And if you have that spot and you identify it's a healthy spot, right, then it just builds all sorts of self-esteem. If you don't have that spot, it really messes you up. And, uh, and I know this uh, both in my own in- intuition, but the algorithm knows that I know this because all last two weeks, I've been trying to study God's word and be about the news and Alabama rush TikTok has just been flooding my social media. And uh, if you don't know what this is, it is mesmerizing watching every young person in Alabama try to prove how great they are so they can join these sororities. And they are, and I mean, I'm so far deep. There's this woman, Megan, who tried to be in all the places and she got rejected. That was the big drama that happened this week. And I'm like, it's so heartbreaking, this poor Megan, she didn't make it, right? But I think that's the perfect example, like a sorority is the perfect boundary. If you are in, then you are in Kappa Kappa Gamma for life. You know, you made it, you're in. And you know that you're in because you have this very firm boundary of who is not in, right? The the more tight your community is, it's because the boundaries are so hard for anyone else to be a part of. And we do that, right, with sororities. uh, That happens uh, with our family. It happens through... um, associations we're in. It happens uh, through countries. It happens through, you know, certain things. We all agree on certain things. You're like, these are my people. Um, but it's interesting that in every group, there's these, these, these firm lines. And this happens kind of in human history, right? There's the family, right? Mom, dad, and kids. And then you have mom, dad, kids, and cousins, and you kind of have like a clan. And then you kind of have like a tribe. And then your tribe maybe becomes like a nation, A nation then becomes like an empire. And by the time you get to empire, right, empires have all sorts of different ethnicities and values and languages, right? And then all of a sudden citizenship is a thing, like the Roman Empire, like Paul was Jewish, but he was a citizen of of the Roman Empire, right? And so we see in God's story that he immediately has this heart that he wants people to know that they belong to him. Immediately from the beginning of God's story, he says, listen, you are my people, I'm going to be your God. And he begins to draw a circle and says, this is how to be part of my people, right? And it began with Abraham, a person. And then it became with Abraham's family, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that family became a tribe, right? That tribe then went to Egypt and then became slaves in Egypt and then left Egypt. And that, that tribe became a nation, right? And all along the way, the, the, the Jewish people were wrestling with that they uniquely belonged to God and God uniquely belongs to them. And they just drew these hard, firm boundaries and rules about who's in and who's out. And uh, what's interesting is that every step of the way, God drops these little kernels and trying to help the Jewish people go, listen, yes, I want you to belong to me, but belonging to me is so that you're a benefit and a blessing to the whole world. You don't just belong to me so you can just excommunicate the world, you belong to me to be a blessing to the world. And so instead of thinking this hard circle with some people on the inside and one poor person on the outside, I think this is a much better picture of the kingdom of God. Jesus tells a couple different parables about the banquet table. And I just love that picture that Jesus is hosting this incredible feast, this giant feast and saying, listen, any and everybody is welcome. And not just to come and have the scraps, but to come and to sit at the seat of honor and to enjoy fellowship 
with him and with one another and to enjoy all the goodies, all the benefits, all the blessings of being in the family of God. And so this morning, we're going to take a look at the last story in our, in our study on Hebrews 11, because the person we're going to look at, I think, is the perfect picture of what it means to be in the middle of the circle, but yet it kind of blows all of our expectations about how in the world we get there. So just for a little recap, we are on Hebrews chapter 11. We spent all summer looking at Hebrews chapter 11, looking at the different heroes of our faith. And it begins in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now, faith is the confidence in what we hope for, the assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. And all summer long, we were looking at these ancient people who recognized that this life was not all about them, that this land was not all about them, that there was a future hope, that there was a future thing for them. And because they put their trust in God and they acted in faith, they were commended for it. And our hope is that we in Marin County in the 21st century, that we would be people who would also put our faith in God, trust in God, step out in faith, and maybe we would be commended one day as well. Well, we're going to wrap up our series looking at verses 30 and 31. So it says this, By faith the walls of Jericho fell after the army had marched around them for seven days. And by faith the prostitute Rahab, because she, was welcomed, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. And so you have this battle of Jericho where the author of Hebrews says, wow, there's two incredible things that are happening here. One, this battle and the way that they marched around, they trusted God, that was really incredible. And then there's this woman, Rahab, who is a hero of faith. It doesn't just say this woman, though, that she was a prostitute. You got to love, even, uh, you know, 1,400 years after this all happened, you got to make sure she's a prostitute, right? But she was welcomed the spies, and she was not killed with those who were disobedient. And so I think this morning we have something really incredible to look at and learn from Rahab. And I think the core message at the very bottom, if you miss everything else I say, Rahab, the story of Rahab is this picture that any and everyone is welcomed at the table of God. And if you can't, I mean, it doesn't matter your age, doesn't matter your race, doesn't matter your ethnicity, apparently doesn't matter your profession. Every single person is welcome at the table of God. All right, with all that being said, let's take a look at Joshua chapter 2, and we're going to begin by taking a look at the story of Rahab. All right, so here we are. So then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from, let's all say this together, one, two, three. Good job. I just didn't want that to be on the recording. So, so go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab, and they stayed there. Right, so, so remember, so Joshua, they, they've been in the, the wilderness for 40 years. They come to Mount Nebo. They look down 50 miles to see Jericho, and they're getting ready to go and conquer Jericho. Now, this is this giant army, and everyone in the surrounding area, they've been hearing rumors of this people, right, that, that, uh, that God miraculously delivered from Egypt, that they walked across the dry land, that caused all these plagues. They, they know the story of this army wiping out uh, the armies on the east side of the Jordan, and now here they are setting up camp outside of Jericho. And everyone in Jericho knows exactly what's going on, right? And so they're looking at this, this, uh, they're looking at this army, and this army's looking at Jericho, and Joshua sends two spies to go, hey, go take a look at this place. So these two spies go, and they go to Rahab, the prostitute's house. And what I love about this, I just want to point out a couple things about the story, is I think Rahab's faith puts her in significant risk. And listen, I'm a middle-aged white guy in Marin, so I don't fully get the empathy around this. So you have to just humor me and just know that I'm willing to take a half step down this road. 
But I think to be a woman in the ancient world was one of the most dangerous places to be for anybody. And what happened was you were supposed to be protected by your father. And then when you got married, you were supposed to be protected by your husband. And that's if everything worked perfectly, but there's still dirtball fathers, still dirtball husbands and a broken, violent world. So if you were a woman in the ancient world, it was a very dangerous and risky place to be. And we know that Rahab wasn't just a woman in the ancient world, she was a prostitute in the ancient world, right? She had no support, no care. She was basically putting herself um, at the mercies of travelers, of men, of, of the system, right? And her life was significant risk. Just existing put her at risk. But by trusting God, by putting her faith in God, she begins to do a couple things that adds even more risk to the table, right? So these spies show up, these foreigners, these invading army bring spies, they come to her house and she has a choice to either welcome them in or to turn them away. And she chooses to welcome them in. And we'll, we'll see why in a second. But what's crazy is this uh, Jericho obviously was small enough that the king knew exactly what was going on too. Verse two says this, the king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy in the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab, bring out these men. The king of Jericho, the most powerful man in Jericho sends his emissary to Rahab's house and she has a choice. Is she gonna turn these guys over or is she going to lie to the king? And she ends up lying to the king. So here you now have this woman who's on the fringe of society already in the riskiest situations is now risking even more by lying to the king, right? And she does that because she has put her faith in God. It says this um, in verse 12, I'm sorry, in verse eight, it says, before the spies, the spies, sorry, before the spies lay down at night, she went to the roof and then she says to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on all of us. She knows, she has this conviction in her heart that this isn't just an invading army, but that somehow God, their God, was this true God. Obviously the gods of Jericho, the gods of the Canaanite people were not working for her. And she's been hearing these rumors about this other God and she chooses to put her faith in this God. And she says, I trust this God. I know this God. And because of that, I'm gonna put my faith into these spies and lies to the king. Now, if you're honest, trusting yourself to foreign invaders is another way to put you at risk, right? There's no like, oh, these are good guys. They, like, this is the ancient world. And to say, hey, there's this invading army, invading spies. I'm going to trust my life to you. And you're hoping that maybe you won't be killed. But you have no idea what's going to happen. She puts her life at risk again. And not only does she trust the word of these spies, ultimately, right, Jericho falls and she's rescued. And she goes to then go live with the Jewish people. And here, a Canaanite prostitute goes and lives with the Jewish people. And the whole thing with the Jewish people were like, hey, you wanna know how you're one of us? You're a son or daughter of Abraham and you live a kosher life. You do the right things. That's how you're one of us. And Rahab goes to live with them and she's trusting herself. And what kind of life is it gonna to be to live with them? So her faith in God wasn't just hiding spies. She put herself at significant risk. And what I love about this story is because th this decision that she made, because it was so risky, like we could have never heard about this. This happened 3,400 years ago. We should never know the story of Rahab. And yet here we are in church in Marin County in the 21st century talking about Rahab because Rahab turns out was a baller. She is my hero. The more that I learned about her, the more I was like, you are an incredible woman. 
because she could have just done this one little thing and that been the end of it and her story would have been lost forever because, right, millions of people do faithful things all day, every day, but she did this thing. And the reason why she's my hero is because the, we're talking about her because the legends and the tor- and the Midrash um, and the Talmud are all these stories that Rahab, who turned out, I guess, was the most beautiful woman who's ever existed. That's their, their one way they talk about it. But not only was, she, was her beauty um, incredible, that she actually repented and became a Jewish woman and became a noble Jewish woman. In fact, marrying a noble Jewish man and who has ancestors and descendants who are priests and prophets and kings. Rahab, a prostitute, a Canaanite prostitute who trusted God and surrendered herself to God and to God's people, turned her life to God. God completely redeemed her life. And she is a legend in the Jewish world. And they talk about her with such esteem. And they must because, you know, by the time you get to Jesus, um, Matthew, who is, you know, the, the best Jewish author of the Gospels, he includes Rahab in the genealogy of Jesus. So not only was she this noble woman, but Matthew is saying, no, Jesus, the Messiah, the Holy One of God, who is going to come and be the Lamb of God, take all of our sins away, in his genealogy is a prostitute Canaanite woman. I mean, everywhere along the way, God makes it known that, hey, here's the boundaries. Here's the in-group. I want you to be my people. And everywhere along the way, he's like, but listen, oh man, way more people than you think should be part of the story, should be part of the excitement, should be part of the drama of my story. And anybody and everybody is welcome. And Rahab is my hero because not only was she a Jewish hero, she also became a Christian hero because Matthew made sure her name was written down. And the author of Hebrews then said, made sure her name was written down. They could have picked anybody and they picked Rahab. So I think there's, there's briefly, there's just three things I want to bring out of her story of why she's my hero and why I think as an outsider, and if you've ever felt on the outside of any group, that I think Rahab is good news for all of us. All right, so here we go. First point. So as an outsider, Rahab fully participated in the story of God, right? Like you think she wasn't just a footnote in the story of God. She fully participated. Not only was she a major part and player um, in that story, because as you know, the spies came to Rahab. They looked around, they came back and said, hey, listen, these people are melting in fear. And it gave the people courage. 40 years ago, the spies went and said, no, they're too big, they're too scary. And they wandered for 40 years. Rahab hosting them gave, them, gave the Israelites courage. She was part of the story. And what I love is everywhere throughout scripture, God uses these total outsiders, people who have no business being part of the story to be in the inner part of the story. Rahab was that, Ruth was that. By the time you start getting to the story of Jesus, you see that Jesus could have picked any one of the 12 disciples. And who does he pick? He picks Matthew, a tax collector. So he picks the most hated Jewish person in their culture and says, you are my person. Right? He then goes to Samaria, and, uh, and not only, right, and especially in Jesus' era, the Pharisees are like on lockdown with their, with their morality, right, and their moralism. And so they're following the rules to the T. And Jesus goes to Samaria, and the Jewish people hated the Samaritans. They, right, they, they didn't understand the scriptures the same way. They had different religious practices. You know, they, they intermarried with the people. They just hated them. And Jesus goes to Samaria. He sits down with this woman, and he ends up giving the most incredible sermon about worship, the things that Meg prayed about in her prayer, the most incredible teaching about worship he gave to this Samaritan woman. 
right? And then it says this in, in John chapter four, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of this woman's testimony. She was the first evangelist. He told me everything that I ever did. And so when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with him and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. Every point Jesus is like, man, it doesn't matter if you're a Canaanite prostitute, it doesn't matter if you're a Moabite, it doesn't matter if you're a tax collector, it doesn't matter if you're a Samaritan woman, it turns out it doesn't matter if you're a Gentile and you eat bacon, it doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, whatever your background is, man, if you put your faith in God, God will take you and embrace you and you get to be part of his story. That's the first one. The second point is this, as an outsider, that she, um, she completely gets to be adopted into the family of God. So not only is she part of the story, how fun. That's super fun to be part of the story. She's a legend. But not only is she a legend, she gets to be actually involved in the family of God, the family of faith. She's in Hebrews 11. She's a hero of the faith. She's going to be at the banquet table. We're all going to get to hang out in eternity with Rahab and be like, what in the world was that like, right? She's in the family of God. So as an outsider, she got fully adopted into the center of God's family. I don't know if you see this movie. This is The Princess Diaries. It's the most incredible movie of all time. I mean, you, you might not know this about me, but in my guts, I just feel like I'm a teenage girl. Like, I resonate with it. I resonate. I mean, I have a teenage daughter at home, and I just, we're like besties because I resonate with it. And this is what I've noticed about every teenage girl. Teenage girls are so awkward. Right? Look at this picture. Her eyebrows, her frizzy hair. She's like, right? Like you're just beginning to realize the world around you. You're beginning to realize all the social complexities, all the nuances, right? You're starting to understand beauties and smells and relational dynamics and boy, like you're discovering all these things, but yet you have none of the skills. You have no idea what to do about it. And of course you're looking around and everyone else seems to figure it out more than you. And you just have this forever, just your self-esteem is just crushed. And we see this, especially, man, with social media. I see this with my daughter. I see this with all of the young girls that, I, that, I, that we have at our youth group and the amount of anxiety and depression that our poor girls are just getting crushed under because they live in this tension where on one hand, they feel all of the awfulness. But this is why teenage girls are so incredible because in their very guts, they know that they are awesome. Or at least they should be awesome. They know in their very guts that they are made with sugar and spice and all things nice. Like they know it. But because they're not experiencing it in the world, these things are intention. And I think as a human being, I think if we're honest, we all can resonate that. We get that we are broken, flawed, messed up human beings who are just making a mess of the world. And yet at the same time, we are God's people and dearly loved, made in his image. And we live in that tension. And what I love about the story of Rahab is Rahab went from not just being part of the story, but got to be adopted in the family of God to be a very daughter of the king. And that option is available for all of us. In John chapter one, it says this, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to be children of God. Anyone, anyone, even a prostitute from Canaan, by putting her faith in God, gets to be adopted into the family of God. That is an incredible thing. I mean, that is an incredible thing because you're not adopting anybody and everybody into your family. You're barely tolerating your kids' friends eating out of your fridge. Like you're barely tolerating those things, right? And yet here God's posture towards us is that if you put your faith into Jesus, not only are you get to spend eternity with him, not only do you get to be a servant of the king, not only do you get to be a cupbearer in the kingdom of God, but you get to be the actual daughter or son 
of the king. Paul says this in Romans, the spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him, we cry, Abba, Father. That's a pretty incredible thing. Like we live in a very casual society. And even in our very casual society, we're not talking to our dads in intimate terms like that let alone in a very formal and religious society. We're definitely not talking to our dads that way. And yet Paul is trying to make it clear that when we put our faith into Christ, the spirit of God gets to be marked on us and we get to have the most intimate, most tender-hearted relationship with God, not as ruler of the universe who's mad at us all the time, but as daddy, Abba, Father. And then he goes on, if that's not good enough, it's, he goes on and says, the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glories. This is a mind-boggling thing that I don't think we actually think about too much. We get that we're God's kids, but we are co-heirs with Christ. So when we work and we partner with God and we're about the kingdom of God, like, that's our kingdom, right? Like, if your dad has a business and it's going to be yours one day, you helping your dad have a successful business means, like, you're sharing in the family business. Well, that is us. As, as followers of Christ, we share in the family business of the kingdom of God. At the end of the movie of The Princess Diaries, you know, so Mia Thermopolis goes from this wild-eyed, bushy, eyebrowed, crazy hair person to realize, oh my goodness, she is a princess, and she gets all her hair done and she like learns how to walk and eat, which is super great and fun. But what's incredible about the story is not that she becomes beautiful and knows how to be poised, is the whole movie is her realizing that she's not just a punk teenager, but she is an heir of Genovia. She's a ruler of Genovia. She's gonna have all of the power and rights and privileges of being an heir of Genovia. But with that comes responsibility, right? With that means she's going to have to say no to certain things. She's going to have to actually be a servant to her people. She's going to have to care about her people. If she's a punk teenager, she can do whatever she wants. But as the heir of Genovia, she has to care about the things of Genovia. And so I think that's exactly what God invites us to do, that we not only get to be adopted into this, I mean, part of the story, but we get to be adopted into the family. And not just to be like spoiled brat kids, but to be co-heirs with Christ, to be princes and princesses, to take on all the rights, all the responsibilities to be about the kingdom of God. What a different way we would understand the world if we understood that we were co-heirs with the kingdom of God and all the stuff we're doing with and for God was part of our inheritance. What a whole different way to think about it. And here's the last thing. As an outsider, uh, Rahab proves that it's our identity in Christ that matters, not the identities that divide us. And this is hard because we live in a moment where our identities are the only thing that matters, Right? I am a white, middle-class, male, heterosexual, middle-class, I think I already said that already, you know, all the things, right? And we all have these identities, and, uh, and what ends up happening is, because of all these identities, we've, we've moved as a culture, those identities all separate us out. And then if you get a certain combination of those identities, then you, like, that's who the really special people are, and then that's who the really unspecial people are, right? And then you start throwing words around, these are the oppressor people, and these are the oppressed people. And it's like, it's messing everybody up. Because when you start drawing firm boundaries around your identities, unfortunately, there's a shadow side to all those things. If everything about my identity was being white, boy, the shadow side of that is going to get pretty gnarly pretty fast, right? If everything about my identity was being heterosexual, and I had to prove that out to the whole world, boy, that's going to get pretty ugly pretty quick. 
What I love about the story of God is that every identity matters, but all those identities are submissive to our identity in Christ. I love this passage in Galatians chapter three. It says this, so in Christ Jesus, we are all children of God through faith. For you are baptized into Christ and have clothed yourself with Christ. So now there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And everything in us wants our identities to matter. And if at least they don't matter fully, they at least want to affect where we sit in line, right? It's just a natural thing when we take these identities. And I, I love Rahab because here Rahab, she's not a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That should allow her in the very center of God's story. No, she's a prostitute, a Canaanite woman. And yet because of God's incredible faith and I mean, incredible love, lets her be in the story. And Jesus' identity becomes the marker of all the things. Now, what I'm not saying is all of those things that mark us, all those different parts of identities, those actually really do matter because we're the body of Christ and God needs every single one of us with all of our unique histories and backgrounds and all the different things that mark us for who we are. God wants those things to be part of our story. God wants to use those things for part of our story because there's places that I can't go and bring the kingdom of God that other people who have a totally different background can go. But we need to recognize that it's not our identities that stratify us. In Christ, we are all one. And I just love how God does this in his word because I want to be the center of the story. I want to be important. I want my ideas to matter. Um, but I'm honest and know that I'm really an outsider. And I don't know how to make any of those things happen. And yet God in his goodness has said, the way this happens is through faith in me. And then he holds up Rahab, this prostitute from Canaan, a, a, a people who are about to be invaded, and says, this is now the woman who gets to be a hero of the faith. Because God, she had faith, and God chose her, and God redeemed her, and she gets to be a legend and someone for us to look up to. And so for me, my hope for me and my hope for you is that we would be people who would recognize our outsider status, but humbly come and take that to Jesus and recognize all the great things that come when we put our faith in Jesus. And that we would know firmly that we are in the center of the circle and that we belong beyond a shadow of a doubt. But then at the same time, we would be postured for any and everybody who's not around that circle yet to recognize that you and I are now the hands and feet of Christ. It's now our job to be welcoming people into the family of God, which means that we need to have the grace and mercy and long-suffering and creativity that God had when he did that to all the people before us. So here's how I want to end up our time. We're going to spend a little bit of time in prayer. And I would just like for you to think about which camp are you living in? If you're an outsider and you're like, I'm just kind of figuring out this Christian thing. I'm just figuring out this church thing. Gosh, I just want you to know that I hope that you're not an outsider forever. Now, while you're trying to figure it out that you get to be a guest. And just like if you came to my house, you may not get part of my 401k when I die, but you can eat from my fridge, right? As a guest, you can have access to all the things. And so as you're figuring this out, I hope that you feel our church's generosity and hospitality, that you can come and experience any and all that we have to offer because you are a guest of honor. And so I hope you feel that and I hope you experience that. But for some of you who've been guests a long time and you're ready to go move from being a guest to being an actual daughter or son of the king, then this simple prayer and act of faith to put your trust into Jesus and to embrace this new identity.
And so I want to spend a little time praying for those groups of people. And so for some of you, I mean, you're the inner sanctum of Marin Covenant. Without you, Marin Covenant would not function. And we are so thankful for you and for your ministry. And we need more and more people who see themselves as leaders and as the inner sanctum of Marin Covenant. But our gentle encouragement is that as for as much as we are in the center of Marin Covenant, we need to have the same mantle of Christ, right? To be postured, to keep our eyes open, to have eyes to see and ears to hear all the ways that God is drawing and wooing all the most unexpected people to him and that we would see them and we'd embrace them and we would care for them. And that our church, along with all the churches in Marin and around the world, would be testimonies of God's grace. So we'll spend a little bit of time in prayer and then, uh, and then we'll wrap up our time this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father and our gracious God, I love how your scriptures are always throwing wrenches into the systems that we have in our heart. We think we know how the world works and you are always bending our mind with your generosity, with your grace, with your mercy. We're so thankful that you've allowed us to be a church that is postured to make space for people who are spiritually hungry, who are figuring out what it means to know you and to love you, to come and find a safe landing spot as they sort all that out. And so for people in the very beginning of that journey, God, I pray that you would meet them exactly where they are and that they would experience your grace and your patience and your generosity and that they would experience that through our people here to be guests of honor in our home. And for some people who've been around this journey for a long time, who've been enjoying being a guest of honor for a long time, maybe this is the morning where they're ready to move from just being a guest and to actually be a daughter or son. And if that's you, it's just a simple recognition that you're at the end of your rope. That you're tired of living for yourself and having your world and your life be only about you. To recognize that you're a broken and sinful person and that you're in desperate need of God's love and grace. And when we humbly come to God and we ask for grace and mercy, not only do we experience that, but we get adopted into your family. And we are your most precious daughters and most precious sons. And for people in this room this morning who may be taking that step of faith, I pray that they would just experience your pleasure and your joy of welcoming them to your table. And for those of us that this is our church, this is our spot, this is the place where we belong. I pray that we continue to be your people and that we have eyes to see, ears to hear, that we would continue keeping our passion for you hot, our, our heart for you soft, so that we would be the fragrance of your son, Jesus, and that any and all people in this county who want to know where is there a spot to figure out who Jesus is, that this would be that spot and that we would position and posture ourselves to make space for them. No matter who they are, no matter what they've done, no matter their identity or their external um, presentation, God, whoever they are, if they wanna figure out what it means to know you, then this is their spot. For those of us who belong, may we be postured like you are postured towards us. So have your way in us and through us and be glorified in any and all of it. 
We love you, Jesus. You're such a good God. And all of God's kids said, amen and amen. Let's stand and continue to sing one of my most favorite worship songs all about our incredible identity in Christ. <laughs>